Good morning. morning. Whoa, CJ's back. That's good to know. (laughs) Welcome to Awaken Church. Uh, It is so cool to see how this sanctuary was transformed from uh, wedding ceremony yesterday back into like rose today. That's so good. That was such a blessed time yesterday. So good morning, Awaken, and welcome to the world post-endgame. It's a whole new world now, and for my family in particular, we have uh, seen every one of the 22 movies together in the theaters, Uh, all except for one, actually. Josiah missed out on uh, Captain Marvel, but otherwise, our family's been there at every single one, and for us, honestly, it feels like a bit like the end of an era. And I realize that there are some of you in this room that really don't care. And you've probably heard more than enough of this. And like I have heard enough to fill an entire life many times over. And I apologize. I don't want to harp on this. I simply want to pass along to you that if you could just take one moment and imagine what it might feel like to have gone through this journey together. 22 movies over the course of 11 years. 22 small stories that have been woven together into this bigger story. And in many ways, the way we've looked at it is like this whole series of Marvel movies has been a human effort to replicate what God has been doing throughout history. That might be a bit irreverent. I'm just going to go there and say that one of the really neat things that uh, Marvel has done, and I shared this last week, is the implantation of these little Easter eggs. And for those of you who watch these movies or play video games, you know what an Easter egg is. It's like these little hints, these little clues, these little jokes, insider jokes that kind of uh, take you a little bit deeper into the story. And it's really neat. What Marvel has done is they put these little Easter eggs in movies that later show up and get unveiled in later movies. And so when uh, they have storylines that are kind of left open and left unending and unclosed until we come to Endgame, and then some of those get closed up. And uh, I find that fascinating because I think that's the way that God kind of writes history, too, that over the course of history, as you look at the story of the church, beginning from the book of Acts and all the way through, God has put these little Easter eggs, these hints, these clues that point to something greater And don't get fully unmasked or unwrapped or unraveled in the moment. But looking back, you understand, oh, that's what happened there. That's what was going on. And God has been doing this throughout history in the story of the church. And what we've done as a church over the course of these past five weeks is we've been taking one of those storylines in particular. To take a look at the story of this one church in the city of Philippi. And to see not only what God did with that church, but also to take a look at all these little Easter eggs and hints and clues that might point us, point to us in how we might express living as the church today. Things that we might learn from the story of the church at Ephesus. And so over the course of the past five weeks or so, we've told the story and walked through the story of how the church at Ephesus got planted how the church grew and key figures in the church at Ephesus, how the church dealt with false prophets and those who came in teaching a works-based salvation rather than a grace-based salvation. And this morning, our focus is going to turn to the letter written to 
the Philippian church. We would more commonly call it the book of Philippians, but it was a letter that was written by Paul and delivered to this church at Philippi. The letter itself was written about 10 years after the church was launched, and it was uh, at this point in time, the church 10 years later is, is established, and from what we know, healthy and growing. Uh, you can even see reflected in the letter that Paul is not writing to a church that's in crisis. He's writing to a church that he loves and has a fantastic relationship with and is blessed by. One of the church itself, the church of Philippi, has sent one of their key leaders. His name is Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus it was sent by the church with a, um, with a gift, like a care package, sent to Paul at his moment in need. It was a care package that was both financial and other things. And Epaphroditus himself was part of that gift, that he was there to serve Paul in whatever way he could to help advance the mission and care for Paul, and even while Paul was in prison. And in fact, Epaphroditus went so far into such great lengths to care for Paul and to minister alongside Paul and to be a part of the mission that he didn't take very good care of his health. He did get sick. And Paul, as we'll read in a little bit, he got so sick even to the point of death. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul shares more about Epaphroditus, this man sent from the church at Philippi. And he writes, Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He was brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my need. I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed that you heard that he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So... I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you'll be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death, doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So Epaphroditus has been sent back to the church at Philippi after recovering from this near-death experience. And as he is going back, Paul gives him this letter and says, I want you to deliver these words to the church. And so that's how the church uh, at Philippi receives this letter, which we today call the, the letter of Philippians, uh, or the book of Philippians. The reason why um, this letter in particular has been a point of uh, study for us is because it's a letter that in many ways Paul could have written to us here in Jacksonville. Uh, as we shared a couple weeks ago, Philippi as a city was actually a predominantly military city, uh, part of the Roman colonies, and uh, it was near a port. It was a really diverse group of a mix of people in the city, and uh, the church that was at Philippi at this point in time is 10 years old. Uh, around about 10 years old, healthy, established, and growing. So that sounds a lot like our situation. Paul is also not writing to a church that's in crisis, as I shared a bit ago, like the church at Corinth, which was going through a number of challenging issues. But instead, it's a writ letter written out of love, written out of joy to a church 
that has been healthy and having a good relationship with the Apostle Paul. At the same time, they've been just a bit beaten down by the different challenges of life. Maybe they're feeling just a little bit discouraged, and that's reflected in what Paul writes to them as well. But Paul's affection for this church is poured out all over the letter. In Philippians 1, this is what Paul says when he thinks of them. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So in many ways, as we're going through this letter, as we're going through the message of the book of Philippians this morning, I want you to imagine, if you've ever even thought about, most of you probably haven't because you're not weird, but if you've ever thought about, man, I wonder what it would be like if the Apostle Paul was alive today and he were to write a letter to Awaken Church. I wonder what he would say. And in many ways, this letter to the church at Philippi is a lot like what we imagine a letter to Awaken Church would look like if the Apostle Paul wrote that today. So, through this book, through this letter, we're going to key in or, or focus on three key messages that Paul shares with the church. Am I okay on this? Just, uh-oh. Wow, I haven't used one of these in a while. Okay, so three key messages that Paul is sharing with the church throughout, uh, through, at the church at Philippi. So the first one is this, follow Jesus even through hardship. Follow Jesus even in the midst of difficult times. Follow Jesus relentlessly. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So, for those of you who are a part of our church or have been part of our church for at least the past year, what you know is that we made an announcement at our 10-year anniversary last September to our church that one of the things that we're believing God for, the faith step that we're going to be taking, is to see God out of this church start a new church, a new congregation, to church plant in the fall of 2020. That is our faith goal. And I know how that sounds. It sounds totally ridiculous. It sounds like that doesn't make sense at all. Church planting is something bigger churches do, established churches do, and it doesn't necessarily make sense for us. After all, who are we? We're nobodies, right? So why would we ever do a crazy thing like that? And I think at the end of the day, what we believe as a church is that God has used nobodies throughout history and throughout the scriptures, right? It's not about who we are, it's about who God is and the God we have put our trust and our faith in. And we wanna be a part of his work and not just a part of his work, like bystanders, like hopalongs that just kind of just jump on board. And, but uh, we wanna be a part of advancing God's kingdom. And we believe this is a part of what that looks like. And we don't know what God's gonna do. God's gonna work in his own timing and way but this is the faith step that we've, we've put out there. And it's really been interesting what God has been doing spiritually in our church since that time, seven months ago-ish. So it's been really neat to see some of the new initiatives that have taken place as a result of faith, to see things like uh, we've launched our, our new website just a few months ago, which has been really cool and a lot 
of the effort of Stephen Freeman, which has been such a blessing. Uh, we've actually started doing things like streaming our services, which is really weird. And I'm going to be honest with you, still a bit uncomfortable on my part to actually be accountable for what I'm sharing up here. That's kind of nuts. So some of our home groups have been doing some great things and initiating some really cool and innovative ideas, even looking ahead to this coming summer. There have been some really neat things that have been put on the table that our home groups want to try, and I'm excited about seeing that spirit. Link, uh, which is a summer project, is going to be in Jacksonville in about three weeks, and it's the first time we've had a summer project since the last time we launched a church, and that was Awaken back in 2008. So God's been doing some really neat things. And again, I don't know that all of these are necessarily tied to that faith step of church planting in the fall of 2020, but I'm also not going to dismiss it either. God is at work. On the other hand, there have been challenges that our church has been facing over the course of the past seven months since we've made that announcement that I'm also not going to write off as coincidence either. Um, We've had some really dear friends in one of our sister churches go through some unimaginable sins and the challenges of working through that has been a burden for us as well. And your pastors have been coming alongside and helping care for them and walk through some of that process with them. We've had a few families in our church go through some really, really difficult challenges um, in the family and in faith and just wondering, God, what are you doing? Hitting us at our most vulnerable area, right? (coughs) With the people that we love most and what I've loved is seeing how our church, and for those of you who have, who have known and heard, just come alongside and serving and loving these families well. We've uh, had a number of health issues, which I know seems like it happens all the time. And I don't know if you felt the same way that I have, but uh, it feels like even the common colds and the flu bugs have just stuck with us longer and been more pervasive and, uh, than they have in the past. I've visited more people in the hospital over the course of the past seven months, and I can probably say in the past five years before that. It's been just really insane. So uh, there's been, uh, we've had one of our pastors, uh, Vashi Nemechek, as he announced uh, two weeks ago, stepping back and stepping out of, of his role as pastor here at Awaken. And that's been quite the challenge as well, uh, to work through that process and excited and encouraged to see how he's been prioritizing his family and prioritizing some of the things that needs to get set back in order and, and, uh, and having the maturity to take that step as well. Um, even for me and our family, um, my wife, I, I've actually started seeing a counselor just about a month ago, so don't judge me, you know, and it's been, it's been a good experience to work through my own stress and my own anxiety and worries. And so there have been things that God's been doing um, on both the blessing side and also allowing to have happen. And, and whether you want to call it persecution, opposition, challenges, life trials, life itself, whatever the case may be, we believe that if we're looking through spiritual eyes, and that's kind of the responsibility of the pastors, kind of help the church to be able to see a bit more through spiritual eyes. I don't know if we're going to chalk all this up to just coincidence over the course of the past seven months. I think what it points to, and what I don't want our church to miss, is that the reality that we are in a spiritual war, and we have been from the moment we made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. We haven't talked about spiritual warfare in a while, and again, I don't want to get into a crazy, I just, I want to take the time to do this right if we do it, but I just want to say for us, right, to understand that only Christians are involved in this idea of spiritual war. If you're not a Christian, you're not at war, right? You already belong to the enemy, so he's not at war with you, and God is not 
your enemy either, right? He never has been, never will be. But for those of us who have made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, what has happened at that moment as we cross from death to life is we made an enemy, right? An enemy who is seeking to relentlessly and ruthlessly destroy our lives. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about what this looks like, and God tells us in those passages that we are to equip ourselves for this spiritual battle on a daily basis, to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm. God tells us numerous times in, in the word to not be naive. There's a spiritual war going on, and we are in it. Paul shares this idea with the church at Philippi as well. He reminds them that, hey, hey, don't be naive. There is a battle going on. There is an enemy, and you need to stand firm. In Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, he says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. In other words, you're not part of the world anymore. You've taken on a new identity. You're my kids. You're part of my kingdom. So live that way, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies, whether physical or spiritual. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of this. Paul is writing this from prison. And what he's telling the church is, stand firm. I love that that is the exhortation. Even as I shared earlier in Ephesians 6, the challenge is after you put on the full armor of God, what do you do? You're to stand firm. You don't run, which is a good thing, because God doesn't armor your backside at all, right? So there's no point in running. And God doesn't even necessarily require you to advance. He just says, stand firm against the enemy. Don't be intimidated by them. Physical, spiritual, whatever form they might take, you have nothing to fear from them. Your unity and your steadfastness, the way you stand firm is going to be a sign to them that they should be terrified at the prospect that they will be destroyed in the end and that you will fulfill the hope of salvation. Your privilege that comes with putting your trust in Christ also comes with the honor of suffering in this life the way that he did. So don't consider it a surprise. Don't be amazed if that happens. Do what is right. Do what is good. Endure whatever consequences come from that, but do not run. We're in this together. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully even in the midst of hardship. And what Paul is telling this church is that as you do this, as you follow God and remain faithful to him, even in the midst of hardship, you will see your faith come to life. Brothers and sisters, don't miss it. The second 
message that Paul shares through this letter is this idea of living selflessly. To live selflessly, Philippians 2, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. If there is a more beautiful picture of selflessness in the Bible, I don't know where it is. This is a beautiful picture of what selflessness looks like, right? Selflessness is not about trying to impress other people. Selflessness is about humility and thinking about others as much as, if not even more so, than the way you think about yourself. Selflessness is not merely looking out for your own interest, but also looking out for the interest of others. And you know what? This is what Jesus modeled. That's the example that we are to follow. That God did not, that Jesus did not consider his status of being equal with God, something to hold on to, something to cling to, but he gave it up, he surrendered it in order to become human. And then even when he became human, he surrendered any status that he might have had and became a slave for us, even offering his life to us in order to please and obey God. Is this how you live? If you were to examine your life, if the people closest to you were to take a look at your life, would they say that you're a selfless person? Recently, a uh, survey was taken by a group called YouGov. I don't know who they are. Um, they surveyed about 2,000 people, and they asked them this really interesting question. The question that they asked is, what is most important for someone to show in order to be deemed a good Christian? In other words, the heart of this is we're asking just people in general, Christians or not Christians, that when you look and in your mind, when you define someone as being a good Christian, what character quality, what quality do they exhibit that causes you to say that? And you know what the response was? The most commonly given response? 35% of the people who responded said the quality that they would look for that gives them an idea that this is a good Christian person is if they exhibited kindness. Kindness. 35%. Second was loving, and that was only like 13%, 14%. Right? Kindness is the attribute that people look for to determine whether or not you're living out your faith well. The way you live, the way we live, it matters. Even if we're doing things in private, God sees. Our family and friends, those closest to us, they see how we live. Our classmates, our coworkers, and even strangers, they're watching. You know what the definition is of kindness and how kindness relates to this idea of selflessness? Kindness is defined as having a tender concern for others. Kindness is a reflection of how selflessness should be expressed. 
In other words, it's one thing to have an attitude where I am being concerned. I have a priority. I prioritize that my concern for others. Kindness comes alongside and say the way you do that is through tender benevolence, tender concern. Why was this so important for the church at Philippi to hear? Again, the church, Philippi wasn't going through a crisis. They were just a bit discouraged. God has been encouraged, or I'm sorry, Paul has been encouraged by them. He loves them well. The reason why I believe that this was so important for the church to Philippi to hear is because when we go through difficult things, when we go through discouragement, when we go through hardship, our tendency is to turn our eyes inward. We tend to start focusing on ourselves. What do I need? What do I want? Why am I feeling miserable? Why am I discouraged? That's what we tend to fixate on. And we pass that along to the people around us, don't we? That, hey, why hasn't my spouse, why isn't my best friend, why haven't the people who cared about me noticed? Why aren't they asking? Why aren't they caring for me? Paul realizes that's the tendency. That's what happens when we get discouraged, when we start getting down, when we start enduring trials and going through trials, is we stop being selfless and we start becoming selfish. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how you are to live. Follow the example of Christ Jesus, who even in the midst of pain and suffering, kept his eyes focused outward on what God wanted for him and on the people that he loved. And we are to do the same. So follow Jesus even in the midst of trials. Be selfless. And then the final message that uh, we'll go through that comes through in this letter to the church of Philippi is to rejoice always. Rejoice always. In Philippians 1, Paul writes these words, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. The letter to Philippians is a letter filled with joy. Paul is excited about this church. They're a source of great blessing to him. And what he wants to do is say, not only do you fill me with joy, I want to remind you, I want to emphasize to you the importance of joy in your own life. What it means, what rejoicing always does in guarding your life. And he shares that in Philippians 3. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. There's something about having a spirit of joy and rejoicing that guards our faith, that keeps us secure in the hand of Christ. You know, I grew up in a Chinese family, and yes, all the stereotypes are true. We're pretty controlled emotionally. We don't swing back and forth, and we aren't given to great or grand displays of emotion. I think, uh, I don't know how that happened to of like one and a half billion people all at once, but that's kind of what it means to be Chinese, in case any of you don't know. The interesting thing about it is, and what I think some of the people on the outside get wrong, is it's not that we're always serious. It's not like we don't have a normal range of emotions. We're just much more subtle about them. Right? We don't believe that there's a need to go over the top in expressing our emotions in order for people around us to understand how we feel. My wife is Cuban. <laughs> She's a fireball. 
And I don't think Cubans live any other way other than going over the top with their emotions and being incredibly expressive on how they feel, right? Amen. And I love it, right? Uh, her laugh is loud and infectious, and her crying is blubbery and messy all over the place. And she can be all over the map emotionally, and I love it. I share that because we're both, I would consider both of us to be joyful people. We tend to both be optimistic. We look for the best in others. And uh, we tend to have a pretty optimistic and positive view on life. But we express it really differently. She's more bombastic. I'm more subtle, right? And I think what Paul is saying here is that the idea of rejoicing always, the reason is that I can make this a command to you is because rejoicing is a choice. And I want you to choose this as a part of safeguarding your faith and understanding more of who God is and God's nature. And I want to say this too, right? I think sometimes joy, happiness, we kind of get these a bit mixed up and entangled. And I think sometimes we try and split hairs where hairs don't need to be separated. Joy and happiness, I feel like they're pretty much wrapped up in the same idea. Sometimes Christians can parse the two out and they say, well, happiness is a feeling. It's tied to circumstances, whereas joy is eternal and lasting. I'm just like, maybe, but the scriptures don't differentiate that way, right? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. So that's what Philippians 4 teaches. Always be, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Rejoicing is not only an encouragement. Rejoicing is a command. Rejoice always. Your circumstances should not dictate the boundaries of your obedience to this command of rejoicing always. Follow Jesus even through hardship. Be selfless and rejoice always. These are the messages that were written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Messages written to a church that looks a lot like us, planted in a city that looks a lot like Jacksonville. And as we close, I want to share one final thought about how Paul brings these different ideas together. But before I do, I want to talk about the NFL draft. I apologize. I'm being really guy nerdy today. I'm talking about Marvel. I'm talking about the NFL draft and somewhere in there woven being Chinese. So that's kind of all moving. So for those of you who don't know what the NFL draft is, once a year, right around the time of my birthday, so that's why it always sticks out in my head, the NFL teams, the National Professional Football teams, go through this process of going round by round, taking turns, picking from the best players from college football who have announced themselves eligible for the draft. And so basically, it goes in rounds, and each turn, each team politely takes a turn. They get like a certain amount of time, a lot of period of time to pick who they want on their team. And generally speaking, the most talented and most hardworking, the best players in college football tend to get drafted early, right? Because they're the ones that teams will want to pick early. And then as it goes on, the, the players aren't as great as those drafted in the early rounds, but they're still really, really good. Anyway, DK Metcalf uh, is one of those really talented players. If you follow the draft, you know that he was... Uh, he's the wide receiver from Old Miss. 
and he went into the workouts, the combine, and came out with absolutely blistering numbers. I mean, every measurable on this guy was off the charts. He ran faster at 4-3. It was incredible. He was buff, and I mean, he just looked great. And so the experts walked away from the combine thinking this is a guy who's going to be picked in the first round for sure and likely picked in one of the first 15 picks, right? One of the first two wide receivers taken off the board. And so because of that, DK Metcalf was invited to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where the draft is taking place, and invited into this room called the Green Room. And the Green Room is this room where the most um, likely early draftees kind of sit together with cameras catching their reaction to being drafted early so they can go, oh, wow, that's amazing, and then walk up and take accept um, the hat or whatever it is to be drafted on the team. So in this green room, DK Metcalf is with a number of these other players, and one by one as the draft goes on, they're being picked. They walk out of the green room, walk across the stage, and then celebrate with their families, except DK wasn't picked in one of the first 15 picks. In fact, by then, he was sitting in that room alone as the last one who hasn't been picked yet. By the time the day ended, the end of the first round happened, he hadn't been picked at all. The entire day, as each pick was announced, sitting in eager anticipation, wondering, is this me, is this me, is this me? No, it's not. Waiting, is this me, is this me, is this me? No, it's not, waiting. Day two comes. He chooses not to be in the green room. He's sitting with his mom instead in her mom's house. And the second round goes through, and surely I'm going to get picked early in the second round, and it doesn't happen. Second round goes through over and over. Wide receiver after wide receiver. Eight of them are picked in front of DK Metcalf until the last pick of the second round. The pick is held by the Seattle Seahawks, and they give DK a call. And this is on camera, so he's at his mom's house. So you see the discouragement, the frustration. And by the time he picks up the phone, he almost picks up the phone angrily and says, yes. And he hears these words, hey, man, get fired up. We're going to make you a Seahawk, okay? And at those words, he just breaks and he starts crying uncontrollably, sobbing uncontrollably. So much so that the general manager who called him and said, hey, we're going to make you a Seahawk, had to pass the phone off because he didn't know what to do with this crying guy. He passes it off to Pete Carroll, who's the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, who's a much more uh, emotional guy. And he picks up the phone. He hears DK crying on the phone. And he says, hey, he starts tearing up too. And he's like, it's okay. We'll just cry together then. And that's what they do. I know, you're thinking, where is this story going? So DK Metcalf, by all reports, was this really good kid. And he had this dream. And his dream was to be a professional football player. And in the end, he got his dream but the way it happened was not in any way what he expected. And it wasn't in any way what the people around him expected either. And because of that, he was disappointed, he was frustrated, he was hurt, and he was angry. So I want you to just to imagine how DK Metcalf might have felt when he got that phone call. On one hand, you're angry, you're frustrated, right? Why is this? As a matter of fact, he actually said it later on. He's like, why did y'all wait this, this long, man? Why did y'all wait this long, man? 
He actually said that to Pete Carroll. He's like, why did it take all this time to finally get me picked? So on one hand, he's, he's frustrated, he's angry, he's hurt, he's disappointed. On the other time, on the other hand, his dream has come true. He's going to be playing professional football. And so it's just all this ball of emotions that just becomes blubbering and crying from this young man. And so if you can empathize, if you can relate for just a moment what that might feel like, I can't help but imagine that that's the group that Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter to this church at Philippi. That know, this church that knows and understands that we have this hope in Christ. And it's an eternal hope. We're going to spend our eternity with God. And as challenging as this life may be today, our hope is secure in Christ. We are part of God's family. We're his kids. At the other, on the other hand, man, this life doesn't look anything like I thought it was supposed to look. I thought when we accepted Jesus and, and we became Christians that everything was supposed to go smoothly. That God being with us means that we don't have to face hardship and trials that other people have to face. And why am I going through these really tough things? Why am I going through these disappointments? I just don't understand. And we're this big blubbering mess. And on one hand, it's like we're going to heaven. We're saved. On the other hand, no, but man, it's really tough. And I'm discouraged and disappointed. But... In the bigger scope of things, I'm, 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 with, I'm with God, right? I'm part of God's family. And so this dichotomy of emotions. And in light of that, right, if that's something you can empathize with, if that's something you can say, man, I, I get that feeling because I've gone through it too. Yes, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. But man, things are really hard right now. That's not what I have my eyes set on. And yet if I take a step back, yes, Frank, all right, I get it. Yes, I need to be thankful and grateful. But, you know, when we keep bouncing back and forth, if you can get that emotion, then maybe you can understand why Paul chooses to close his letter to the church at Philippi with these words. Philippians chapter 4 in the final chapter, verses 11 to 13. Not that I was ever in need. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is what Paul says. He's like, you know, I know I've shared these messages with you. It's great. I hope you live them out. Follow Jesus even through hardship because you're going to face them. Be selfless. Part of living this new life is that it's not about us. And finally, rejoice always. And yeah, I want you to take that in, but here's what I want you to catch at the very end, right, is I'm bringing all of this together. Look, I know you're living in these conflicted truths, right? Where, yes, we have this eternal life and this beautiful life with God, but to get there, we've got to maybe endure some rough things in this life still. And I'm telling you, this is the secret of how to make that life work. Whether you're hungry or full, in good times and bad, our strength comes from Christ. After our, our service is done, what we've been doing uh, this month is having a time where we're offering just a time of prayer for any of you who feel like, I, I appreciate, and that, you know what, I just need someone to just come alongside me and maybe pray for me, maybe pray with me just for a little bit. Maybe there's some of you here who understand that, you know, yeah, I have been struggling with that issue right there, struggling with having the right perspective and knowing how to rejoice in the midst of my current situation. 
Or maybe it's not me. I am being selfless. I'm burdened for someone I love and someone I care about who's going through some difficult things. And what we want to do as a church is, is just say, hey, we'd love to take a moment and just pray with you, pray for you, pray alongside you. And so if that's something that you want after church, after the announcements are done and Larry wraps up, there's going to be this big sign that says prayer over here. Just want you to come on over and take a moment, and we'd love to take that time and pray with you. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, for this time, for the opportunity and the privilege of being called yours. Thank you for the gift of your son. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, to know that our sins have been forgiven and we have been made clean, made righteous. And then to experience the resurrection and the hope that comes of knowing that not only have we seen forgiveness and experienced forgiveness, but we now have the hope of a better life in you. And God, that life begins today from the moment we made that decision. Thank you, Lord, uh, for all the ups and downs and the challenges uh, that come of that comes with living this life of faith. Uh, to know that, God, you haven't promised us that we would never face any more trials or hardship. That's not the promise. The promise you've given us is that you'll be with us through them all, even to the end of the age. That is the promise you've given us. And we thank you, God, for your presence in our lives, that you are our security, our hope, and that you are with us through every blessing and trial. And you will never leave us, abandon us, or forsake us. God, we love you. We praise your holy name. I pray for these saints. I pray for where they are in their lives right now. And I pray that you'd anoint them and bless them, God. And that blessing, realizing that blessing doesn't mean that everything turns out the way they want it to. But blessing means knowing that they are in you, God. And I pray for this church. I pray for Awaken, Lord Jesus. And pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to lead us in faith to go where you want us to go. And we even set Church Plant 2020 in front of you, God, and pray that you would do with it what you will, that you'd raise up the leaders you want to take point and to take this leap of faith. Love you, and thank you, God, uh, for your great love towards uh, the church and your people. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, 